God's word. You may be seated. Keep your Bibles open to uh, Luke chapter 11. That's where we're going to be spending uh, our, our time tonight. From, from time to time, I'm asked, uh, how do you pray? How do you, how do you pray meaningfully? How do you pray in such a way that you feel like you're really connecting to God? And so that's, that's what we want to do tonight. And I think that this passage out of Luke chapter 11 is one of the, the primary passages on how to pray in the teachings of Jesus. And so let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into it. Father, we are grateful, so grateful for this day, the beauty of it, the time of it, Father, that was dedicated to, to worshiping you and to fellowship and encouragement, and not only knowing, Father, that we are in your presence at all time, but also being in each other's presence and knowing that we are not alone among humans, Father, when it comes to living a life of a disciple, a person of faith in this world. And we pray that we always take advantage of these moments, Father, that, that uh, as much as we go into the world and go into these places, Father, many times in places where you are not known, we, we find ourselves wanting to be light and wanting to be salt in such a way, Father, that, that we bring a certain kind of beauty into those places. And we know, Father, that it's not just from the memorization of your word, but it's it's that Word becoming alive in our hearts because of the way that, that You allow us to come into Your presence, Father, and the way that we interact and rub shoulders and at times become bruised in that interaction, that rubbing of shoulders with You. But all of that, Father, uh, sort of underscoring that You are the most densely real reality and truth and being in the entire universe. And we can call you Father. Help us to not run past these words tonight, but to slow down long enough for them to begin to resonate, not just in our heart, but in our mind and soul, Father. The way that changes the way that we, we interact with you in our prayer life. So we're asking, Father, for eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray this in Jesus' name. When Ellen and I went to Brazil back in 1989, uh, we had taken a course. It was a six-month intensive course at the uh, San Diego State University in Portuguese, and it was uh, uh, it, it, it was a, we had a very good teacher. In fact, uh, sort of in terms of, of of teachers of Portuguese in America in the United States, it was one of the best. Uh, it was published, had collected uh, Brazilian stories in Portuguese, and, and, and turned out. Uh, textbooks and and, um, and and grammars of such, and uh, but it was an intensive course, and so for all intents and purposes for us, it was a waste of time. I mean, we were not anywhere near fluent after taking six months of this intensive Portuguese class. We were with people that were already speaking; they were Spanish majors at San Diego State. They were already fluent in Spanish, and so they were able to motor ahead. And all Ellen and I could do was basically show up for class on time. And that was about the, the most successful thing that we did. In fact, uh, one, of, one of the funniest uh, stories, and, and uh, it, 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 I don't know why I'm telling you this because it's not funny to an American, but uh, uh, coffee is the word café in, in Portuguese. It's a masculine word. And the way you say two is dois in the way that you, if it's masculine, and it's duas if it's feminine. And so like one of the first things I did is walk into one of these coffee shops 
and uh, I wanted to show off how much Portuguese I knew, and I said, Duas cafés, and everybody stopped and looked at me, and sure enough, it was a gringo, so they knew he couldn't speak. And it was kind of an embarrassing moment. You kind of learn to go through that. But one of the really interesting things that happened while we were there and trying to learn language is that the, the way that Ellen and I learned to speak Portuguese is we were immersed in it 100% of the day. We were not part of the State Department. We were not part of the embassy. We were not part of, of any armed forces unit. There, there, there was no English-speaking American support group for us. I mean, we were living uh, among Portuguese-speaking Brazilians in, in their city, on their streets, in their apartments, in their neighborhoods. Uh, our church was made up of Brazilians. There was... You know, it turned out that there were several English-speaking uh, uh, Brazilians there, but they didn't want us to know that. They wanted us to learn Portuguese, so we didn't know they spoke English until later on. We were a little mad at that. We could have used the help, <laughs> you know. So we're immersed, and our church in San Diego thought that, you know, that was such an important thing. If we're really going to be successful as evangelists and preachers and missionaries in Brazil, I have to spend some time learning the language, and there is nothing... But time and effort and sweat and tears and blood and, and, and gnashing of teeth when it comes to learning a language, especially to be able to speak at a heartfelt level where you're able to tell a joke and everybody laughs. So uh, one of the things that we would do is, and, we, and I studied Portuguese, and Ellen did too. I studied Portuguese until the day we left to come back to the States. We were living in the capital, the, the Washington, D.C. of Brazil, and we just felt like it was imperative that we learn to speak very proper, grammatically correct Portuguese. Uh, tried to work on the accent as much as possible, but um, uh, we, we studied until the day we left. But one of the things that we, we were encouraged to do, and so I would do it every afternoon, uh, I would go uh, across the street and, and down the block and around the corner, and there was a commercial sector, and there was a coffee bar there. And it was basically a very simple little opening in, in the, the sidewalk, basically, that had, uh, that had some tables. They served coffee. Uh, they had some, uh, some, some different kinds of uh, hors d'oeuvres or uh, savory types of food. That, and basically what would happen is as guys would take breaks or they would come home from work, that's where they would show up. And they would sit at these tables and they'd have their coffee and there would be a TV with the news on or TV with some political show on or soccer if there was some, anybody playing. And I would go there and I would order coffee and I would sit and I would just listen. Wouldn't, I was scared to death to talk to anybody. The scariest thing when you're in a situation like that is a phone rings at your house and you've got to answer it. Because you can basically say hello and then you're lost. So I, there was no way I was going to say anything while we're sitting, I'm sitting in this, this coffee bar listening. And I will never forget, as long as I live, the day that I realized that I could understand what was being said on the television. When I began to realize that I knew that these guys sitting over on the table, I couldn't understand precisely where they were going and what they were saying, but I knew that they were talking about politics where these guys that were over here were talking about the problem with the Brazilian soccer team, and I began to understand what was being said after being immersed, and I had not said anything, but all of a sudden the words began to make sense to me. Eugene Peterson writes a lot of books on prayer. He writes about how to pray. He writes about the beauty of some of the prayers you find in the Psalms writes a lot about prayers. He, he writes in a book called Working the Angles, he writes, because we learned language so early in our lives, we have no memory of the process. 
language is spoken into us. We learn language only as we are spoken to. We are plunged at birth into a sea of language. And slowly, syllable by syllable, we acquire the capacity to answer mama, papa, bottle, blanket, yes, no. Not one of these words was a first word. All our speech is answering speech. Basically, what he's saying is that regardless of how old you are, whether you're a baby or you're in your late 20s and you're moving to uh, a foreign country, the way that you learn language is to be immersed in it and to understand that you are being spoken to. And what happens in that process, as you begin to, to hear it and to hear it and to hear it, you begin to hear the syllables and you begin to hear the words and you begin to put meanings to, to syllables and to words and you begin to understand what is being said and then you are able to respond. Now when you think about prayer, I think that's absolutely true. Who is in all the universe the first speaker? God. God speaks a word, and through that word, and by that word, creation comes into existence. God speaks a word, and human beings come into existence. And this God continues to speak. He calls Abraham out of the forest of idols in Ur of the Chaldees to come to a land, to come out of that place, and to go to a land that he will show him. And God continues to speak, and now he speaks to us through his word. And yet we struggle, we struggle with prayer. In fact, a, a lot of us struggle with prayer because of, of this, this, this idea that prayer is, is, is not a conversation, but that prayer is, is a duty in the sense of something that you have to perform every day, not realizing that it's, it's part of a relationship, of a growing relationship. It's part of a language, a conversation that builds between human beings of faith and God. Imagine the scenario, you, you have a roommate. You have a roommate, uh, or, or maybe it's, it's your, your spouse. That person virtually does not speak to you. The person does not speak to you. All they do is they leave a message here or there. They might leave you some voicemail. They might send you a text every once in a while. And early in the morning when you get up and they've already gone to work, you go to the fridge and there's a post-it note with some kind of a message on it to you. It's on the fridge. And finally you've had enough of that because you really want to interact with that person and you keep talking to them and talking to them and talking to them, but they will not return the conversation. All they do is leave those messages. And finally you say, what is up with that? And what they say to you is, well, you know, I just don't get much out of talking to you. I find it kind of boring. Kind of a waste of time. When I'm trying to talk to you, I find my mind kind of wandering. I find my mind flittering everywhere. So I just gave up the whole idea of trying to have a conversation with you. A lot of times that's what is happening in, in our struggle to have a prayer life, a conversational prayer life with God. And I think that that's at, is at the heart of what's happening in Luke chapter 11. What you have in Luke chapter 11 is, is, is Jesus praying in a certain place. That's not the first time or the last time that we read about him praying in a solitary place. In, in Mark chapter 1, it's the Eremos. He goes to this place in order to spend time with God. And the disciples know this so instinctively about him that they know when he's, when he's not around and somebody's looking for him, they know where to go and find him. He's with God in prayer in this place. And so we find again in Luke chapter 1, that Jesus is praying in a certain place. 
And after he's finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples to pray. Now one of the things that's really interesting about this is that these men had been taught to pray. From the time that they were old enough to go to the, 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 the Beit HaSoferim and the, the Beit HaMidrash, the different uh, schools that were in the synagogues and all of the villages throughout, throughout Israel, they had been taught not only Scripture and how to memorize it and how to interpret it. The young girls were taught how to have a kosher kitchen. They were taught how to pray. And there were even prayers that they were given, that they were to memorize and that they would pray. Uh, during this period of time, there was the 18 benedictions that have been morphed through the ages and are now different than they were back during the time of Jesus. But there was this prayer of 18 benedictions that, that Jewish people were taught how to pray. And so these are men that are familiar with prayer. They are men that are praying on a daily basis. We read in Acts that there are the times of prayer, that they would go and, and, and pray to God in the morning, afternoon, and in the evening. And yet, there is something so winsome, there is, there is something so captivating, there's something so gripping and, and compelling about the prayer that Jesus is, is, is that they witness, that they hear, that they are, are observing at a distance, that they say, I, I want to pray like that too. I, I, I think prayer is important, but I want to pray like that. I know I've been taught how to pray, but that's the way that I want to pray. Which brings up an interesting point about the, the outreach, witness, testimony nature of prayer. And not just the act of seeing somebody pray, but the listening to them pray and how that, what that says to us and how that explains somebody's faith or somebody's relationship with God and just listening to them pray. And so they ask, you know, John the, the Baptist, he taught his disciples to pray. Jesus, could you do the same for us? And Jesus says, sure. When you pray, and he gives them the model prayer. We, we read it in Matthew chapter 6 as well. It's, we call it the Lord's Prayer. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And basically, Luke is just giving us an abbreviated version of what Matthew has given us in a more blown-out fashion, the Lord's Prayer. But he knows that there's more to it than just memorizing the right words. Now, when you break down the, the Lord's model prayer, you find so many of the most important things that we should be, be thinking about and, and bringing into our prayer life. The very first one is this idea of Father. That we're not praying a prayer like any other prayer that's prayed on the face of the earth. When you, when you look at the prayers of all of the other religions, they're, 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 they're memorized, they're, they're prayers that, uh, that are trying to, to, to coerce, they're, they're prayers that are trying to please. By the very fact that Jesus begins this prayer with the words, Father... He's giving it a personal edge. And the biggest difference between the way that we pray, we pray as Christians and people of faith is this. We pray to our Father. That's the biggest difference between a Christian prayer and pagan prayer. We pray to our Father. That there's this relationship. And this relationship is one that just discombobulated at times the the, the, the people of Israel, because they, they had this idea which was 
accurate that God is holy, that God is powerful, that God is other. But in Jesus, and he refers to God every place except one where he quotes Luke, uh, uh, Psalm 22, in, in Luke chapter 22, where he refers to him as my God, my God, he refers to him as my Father. Our Father. That personal relationship. The Father whose, whose heart is with the children. A Father whose mind and resources are, are with the children. A, a Father whose, whose concerns and best wishes and, and greatest and deepest desires for their well-being and, and, and their, and their, 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 uh, their, their uh, uh, safety and, and happiness and joy in this life. That's the Father. And Jesus says that's the beginning point. But you also recognize that He is holy. That His name is hallowed. And that more, most importantly, you're praying about His kingdom, which is about His reign, His rule. It's about His will coming to bear in your life and on the earth and all around you. It's the earth having lost its foundation like we talked about this morning in Genesis 1-11. through 11. It's about praying that the foundation, that God's kingdom, that God's rule be firmly reestablished in His creation. We recognize that we live by His bread. We, we recognize that, that we only have relationship with Him as, as His children by adoption through the forgiveness of our sins. And that one of the ways that, that, that we know that the gospel has gotten into our hearts and it's gotten all the way down deep inside the very core of our being is that we forgive, that forgiveness that we have received, we pass on to others that are indebted to us. And we pray, Father, lead us not into temptation. And so he's given the right, you know, the perfect right elements for the model prayer. He's helped them to understand that you're not just praying to some far off, aloof, capricious, you know, uh, hidden God out there someplace. You're praying to a father and all that that means. But he wants him to understand sort of the dynamic of what that fatherhood means. And so he says, let me tell you a story. And he says, suppose one of you has a friend. Now he begins that in the original language with the words, tis ex humon, which translated means, who among you, or which among you? And every time you read those words in Luke's gospel, you sort of expect that there's going to be some kind of a, a, a negative response giving. He says in, in Luke chapter, uh, chapter 14 about this son in a well, who among you, if your son falls in a well, not going to pull him out? Well, everybody, well, of course we're going to pull him out. Or he says in Luke chapter 15, suppose which of you having a hundred sheep get back to, you know, to, the, to the ranch with 99, knowing that there's one missing, which of you is not going to go and try to find the one? And they laugh and say, oh, of course we're going to go back and find that one. In, in, in Luke chapter 17, which of you having a servant is going to come in at the end of the day and say, servant, you've been working all day, and why don't you sit down and let me serve you? He said, nobody does that. And so the same thing is expected here when he says, suppose one of you or which among you, tis ex humon. The idea is, is that he's expecting that everyone's going to laugh and say, no, nobody in their right mind is going to do that. So he says, suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from the inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about this particular particular passage is that it, it, is, it, is, it is couched deeply and profoundly in the culture that they live in. The culture that they live in is not driven by love. The culture that they live in is driven by honor. 
If you want to be a, a person of honor, there were certain ways that you would get those honor poker chips. You would be hospitable. You would make sure that your name was a good name. You would always tell the truth. You would do honorable things. During the time of Jesus and Judaism, in this particular aspect of, of the honor system, one of the ways that you got sort of honor in, in Judaism was through your prayers, by giving of alms, and by fasting. And so there was a way that you lived your life that was seen as honorable. It was seen as right. It was, it was the way that you had a noble name. It was a way that you kept face. Um, several years ago, and, and uh, probably, uh, probably the year right before I moved here, the, uh, the, uh, uh, and, in, in the year 2000, uh, went to Israel. Uh, things had kind of heated up between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And our, we were on a bus who happened to be driven by, by a Palestinian who was a Muslim. And uh, some of the people in the bus were a little bit concerned about that because bombs were, 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 were sort of going off in uh, some really bad places and, and hurting some people. And so the question came, uh, is this dangerous knowing that this guy's Muslim and we're Christian on this bus? And our, our tour leader said, this bus is the safest place for you to be in, Christian or not, in Israel right now. This man lives according to an honor system. And when you come under his roof, meaning when you come onto his bus, it is his honor. It is the most important thing in his life. It is all his family reputation, all of his honor, the abhorrence and the evasion of shame, all has to do with him keeping you safe Sure enough, you know, we, we didn't have any problems, uh, which we didn't expect to have any problems, but there was one point where we kind of got into a kind of a crazy neighborhood, and he finally said to us, he said, you know what, you probably, you should not leave sight of the bus. Honor society to this day. And so one of the ways in the ancient culture that you got honor was that you received honor, that you collected honor was in hospitality. And the hospitality was not something that, that was individual. You invite somebody over to your house, and they thank you, and you're the one that gets the honor. In village life, you never say, thank you for coming into my house and bringing honor to my house. It's to my people, to my family, and to my village. And so when this guy comes at midnight, which is sort of a weird thing, but you have to show honor. You have to show hospitality. You go, if you don't have the bread, which is the stuff of life, it, it's the fork and the knife and the spoon, they, they lay out the relishes, they give you the loaf of bread, they're usually kind of flat, you tear it and you use it like a spoon or a fork or, or a, 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 some kind of a, a cup to be able to get the relish and to eat it. But he doesn't have any. But because in, in an honor society in the ancient Middle East, nobody does anything in secret, you know who has bread in your house, in, in their house. You know who has the extras, who has the, the good stuff to lay out in front of people. So you go to that person, because this guy's come at midnight, it's kind of an opportune time, but it's about honor. It's about getting rid of the shame. It's about making sure that you're hospitable. So you go to this guy's house, you knock on the door and say, listen, this guy's come to our village, he's come to my house, I don't have anything to give him, I know that you have bread, can you give me three loaves? And remember, he says, tis ex humo. Which of you, having experienced that, somebody coming and knocking on your door is going to say, no, you need to go. They start laughing. They say, nobody in their right mind would do that. And Jesus goes on. He says, do not bother me. Door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Everybody in their mind is incredulous. Nobody in their right mind would do that. Because, first of all, if you wake up the kids, the kids will go back to sleep. 
locked door, really, all you got to do is unlock it, give the bread, lock it, you're done. Basically, there is no excuse that this guy's given that anybody in that culture would accept as, no pun intended, kosher. The door's already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot give, give you anything. But then everything turns on verse 8. He says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, or some of the translations, I think the, one of the NIVs, the earlier NIV says boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, traditionally, and, I, and I'm guilty of this, traditionally we have taught that, okay, the, the guy that's inside of the house represents God, and I'm the guy knocking on the door. So I knock on the door, I say, I need some bread. The guy upstairs in the house says, I'm not going to give you any bread, representing God. The only reason he's going to get up is because I keep knocking on that door. And we teach sort of this audacity. I think the, 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 the newer translations of the NIV say, uh, but because of his audacity, he gets up and gives him what he needs. Now, the problem I have with that is, did not Jesus just teach us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done? So why is he here telling us when the answer is no, to keep knocking on the door? Unless... That's not what that word means. Now, the word for, that is translated as boldness, persistence, audacity is the word anadea, which and this is the only place that it shows up in the entire Bible, in the Greek part of the Bible. It's a word that shows up very rarely in, 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 other, in, in other places as well. It's sort of a rare word. But once you begin to kind of look at this word and, and begin to understand uh, how it, it's been put together, all of a sudden you realize that, that you know, the, the word basically means because of his shamelessness, which we, we take to mean audacity and, and, and boldness. But in this particular culture, if you say somebody is blameless, what does that mean? They don't have blame. If you say someone is shameless, well, then it kind of gets a little tricky, but basically the idea, and if you have the new NIV, the one that was just translated, there's a little footnote there that says, but in order to, to guard or protect or preserve his honor. And so all of a sudden, realizing that this word audacious or boldness or perseverance is probably not correct, that it's probably about the abhorrence of shame, it's about maintaining and protecting honor, all of a sudden, the he is no longer the guy knocking on the door, but it's the guy that is upstairs that has basically said, I can't unlock the door. So what Jesus is saying is that you knock on the door, I need three loaves of bread. The guy says, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to do it because the door is locked and the children are asleep and I don't want to wake anybody up. And the old lady, she gets a little upset, when, you know, cranky when she gets woken up. He says, he's not going to do it because of that. He says, yet because of his, his honor, because of his not wanting shame, he does get up and give him as much as he needs. So basically what Jesus is saying is the key to prayer and the key 
that they are observing in him as they pray that launches or triggers their desire to learn how to pray is not about their gritty, gritted teeth and their, 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 uh, their, their audacity and their, and their perseverance in ter- and their boldness in terms of knocking on the door because that would be going against thy kingdom come. The key is Jesus' recognition of who it is that he's praying to. That not only... Is it our Father who art in heaven? But it's our Father who art in heaven whose honor is at stake. Now we think that might be you know, a little strange sounding, a little weird, because who is God to put his honor at stake for us? But in another passage, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is writing to a church that, that is, is really messed up in relationships and how they see multi-ethnic uh, sort of this uh, pluralism inside of the church in terms of, of, of peoples. And he says, you know, before they get instruction with, from me on how to straighten this up, maybe I should just get them all focused on what it is that God and the Son and the Spirit have done for them. And so the very first chapter is, is like a, a nice hymn. There are, three, there are three verses and there are three choruses, all to the praise of His glory. That's a chorus. And he begins by talking about all of the things that God has done to the praise of His glory, all the things that the Son has done to the praise of His glory. And then he gets to talking about the Spirit. And he says, you know, the really interesting thing about the Spirit is that that Spirit becomes like guaranteed money for us. It is a, 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 a promise. It is, it is a guarantee deposit in us when we become a Christian, that all of the promises that God has made to us will be yes. And he wants them to get this so profoundly and understanding what it is that God is doing in changing those people in Ephesus and making them one, is that he tells them, think about what it is that God has has done for you and and Christ has done for you. And, And the Spirit has been put inside of you as a deposit against everything that God has said. God is investing so much that He's even even investing His Spirit as sort of earnest money in you. And you know what earnest money is. If you renege on a deal, you lose the earnest money. If God reneges on any of the promises that He has made in Christ, then He loses His Holy Spirit. And if God loses His Holy Spirit, He ceases to be God. That's what Jesus is saying here. That God's honor is at stake in allowing Him in your life To be God. Now, that doesn't mean that you always get what you want. You recognize that He is Father, but you also recognize that hallowed be His name. It's about His kingdom coming into your life and into all of the earth. But His honor is at stake in supplying and and, and, and backing up every promise that He has made in Christ. This is a God whose honor is at stake and allows you to speak to Him in prayer. That's why He says, after telling the story about the guy upstairs, that's why you ask. And that's why you seek. And that's why you knock. Because in asking, you will re- you, you'll receive. And in seeking, you will find. And in knocking on the door, the door's going to be opened for you. So pray. It's a Father whose honor is at stake in your life. That's why you pray. And then he ended up by saying, you know, you fathers out there, you know the difference between giving your son when he asks for an egg, a scorpion, and when he asks you know, for bread, giving him a snake. If you then, who are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, know at least that much, 
How much more then does the Father in heaven give you His Spirit, give you what you need to sustain you during this time? And so the thing that they see in Jesus' prayer life is, is not magical phrases or magical words or, or, or even lots of words. I mean, how many times does Jesus say it's not about the words, it's not about the, the word count, it's not about the number count? You're praying in faith to a Father who loves you, whose honor is at stake. There is a conversation. There is a relationship that is there. And He is the one that is speaking to you through His Word. And the more that you you immerse yourself in that Word, the more you find yourself responding with the right words to Him. And when people hear you pray like that, not necessarily poetic, but it could be. Not necessarily with, 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 um, with, uh, with, with, with lots of Scripture. It possibly could be. What they witness and they observe is a person of faith who is praying to the most real, real being in all the universe. Understanding that that being is a father. That, that being, honor is at stake in every promise that he has our good as a father. That's what I struggle with every day. Is, is, is for my prayers, and sometimes, quite frankly, they are a little bit perfunctory, and sometimes they seem a little rote. But I don't give up because I believe that behind those words, behind those words is the desire of my heart to connect with that God. That God to connect with me. Not just in the morning and in the afternoon and in the evening. But as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. It be that connection all the time. Lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds will come down to the front. But there are ways that we might pray to our Father who art in heaven, whose honor is in In every prayer, in every promise, that He has made to us and in our prayer. And those prayers could be a blessing to you tonight or maybe you want to connect to that God in the most profound way and that is to become His son, to become His daughter, adopted and with His name and with His faith. Then these shepherds will share that information with you tonight. For the rest of us, let's praise that God together. Let's stand and sing, shall we? Is so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know the saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood. Just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. 
Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Please remain standing just for a moment. Um, Rosio uh, Wang has come forward with a card with a prayer request on it. I'm going to ask Alan if would you mind coming up and wording this prayer for us. Uh, she writes, Waylon, her husband, and I, uh, uh, an interview. As you know, Waylon, uh, being Chinese national, has been trying to immigrate to the United States, and Rosio has been waiting for him. Uh, the first interview has been set for March 31st. Prayers that we have everything ready for the interview. Prayers that all of our documents will be accepted. Prayers for a successful interview and the immigration officer Grant Whalen his residency here in the United States, as well as prayers of safe travel as I travel to China for a week uh, from tomorrow, March 21st. Thank you all for your prayers that have finally gotten us to this place. One of our shepherds, Alan Babcock. Let us pray. Gracious God, you are so good. We praise your name, Father. And Father, we're, we're so grateful that we, we know and understand your grace and your love and your mercy.